John 11. I know we read the passage a moment ago, but we're going to refer to it regularly this morning, so you may want to have a Bible handy. There's some notes in your bulletin. You can track along with what we're going to talk about. seems like a long time since we've been in the Gospel of John. It's only been two months. We took a short break to talk about some of the attributes of God, the character of God, and this morning we're jumping right back in where we left off with John 11. I want to remind you of the context, the big context of the Gospel of John and the narrow context of our passage, and so we'll start broadly. John 20, verse 30 to 31, is the theme verse. It's the thematic idea for the entire Gospel of John. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. We've titled the series, Believe. That idea comes up throughout the Gospel of John. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says Jesus did a lot of different signs. Many of them, most of them, are not written in this book. Some of them are, and they're written so that you might believe. Here's a list of the signs that you'll find in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. Jesus turns water to wine, chapter 2. He heals the son of a nobleman, chapter 4. He heals a lame man, chapter 5. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Chapter 7, he walks on water. Only the disciples saw that sign. Chapter 8, he heals a blind man. And then this sign that we're beginning to look at this morning, John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the seventh sign. And John says, to go back to John 20, I have written these signs so that as you read these stories, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing that he's the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, when you believe that, you have life in his name. So every Sunday we dig into the Gospel of John, that's sort of the big overarching direction. We want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We want to have life in his name. That's certainly true here in John 11. That's the broad context. Now the immediate context. Roughly three months have passed since the Feast of Dedication where the Jews were seeking to stone Jesus and to arrest Jesus. So we just left off two months ago, John chapter 10. If you look at verse 31 in John 10, we read the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It's not the first time they did it. They did it again. But they're ready to execute Jesus because he's claiming to have a unique relationship with the Father. He's claiming to be one with the Father. He's claiming divinity, and they're ready to execute him. If you look at verse 39, it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. In the white space between the end of John 10, 42, and the beginning of John 11, verse 1, about three months have gone by. Three months is enough time for everyone to maybe take a breath and calm down a little bit. It's not enough time for everyone to forget what just happened three months earlier. But it's about three months later that we pick up the story in John 11. When we pick it up, we meet three people, three names, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. When John introduces us to these people, he sort of assumes that we already know them. 
Let me explain to you what I mean. If you look at verse 2, it says, Mary, the one who was the sister of Martha, who lived in Bethany, Mary, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. If you're reading through the Gospel of John, you read that and you say, I don't know that story. That's because that story comes in the next chapter, John 12. He's telling you about something he hasn't even told you about. He he just sort of assumes you've heard that story. You know that story about Mary. Previously in the Gospel of John, we haven't met these people. We have met them in the Gospel of Luke. You remember the story where Jesus came and he visited Mary and Martha, and Martha was busy getting everything ready, and Mary was listening to Jesus. John just sort of assumes you know that story. He just sort of assumes, you know, Mary, you know, the one who anointed Jesus. I haven't told you that story, but you know the Mary that I'm talking about. He just sort of assumes and operates under the assumption that we've already met these people and we know them. In John 11, the entire chapter hangs together, right? It's a unity. It's one big story about Jesus going to heal Lazarus. We're going to break it up into three Sundays In the first little chunk we're taking this morning, verse 1 to 16, all hangs together in this way. This section of verses tell us how Jesus made it to Bethany, right? Nothing super exciting happens in these verses. I hate to disappoint you, but it's all set up to what's going to come later. Specifically, it's set up to the question, why did Jesus show up in Bethany after Lazarus had already died? If his plan in the end was to heal him and to make him alive, why didn't he just get there as soon as he got the message? Why did he wait and then show up after this man who he loved, a friend, had already passed away? So that's sort of the the connecting point in our passage. The big idea this morning is the same big idea that we're going to talk about all the way through John 11. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. This whole story is intended to teach us something important about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. Jesus specifically in John 11 verse 25 is going to say, we'll get to this verse next week, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks a question. He says, do you believe this? That's the question for you and I each week as we work through John 11. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? Yes, I believe it. And I have life in Jesus' name. Or no, I don't. And it's Jesus himself asking the question. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you'll live, and you're going to have life that even though you die, it can't be taken away, and he just sort of looks at these women, and he sort of looks at you, and he says, do you believe it? Yes? Do you believe it? No. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. There's also seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and I'll put those on the screen. Jesus says in chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 10, I'm the door and the good shepherd. Chapter 11, where we're at for the next few weeks, I'm the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, 
He says, I'm the vine. So on the table this morning and for the next few weeks, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? This week I came across some interesting stories. These are stories of unusual deaths. These are stories that are not ha-ha funny. So I'm telling you right now, these are not ha-ha funny stories. They are that strange type funny stories. And I'm telling you, I'm about to tell you some stories. I'm not looking for a laugh. Now, for some of you, that means you're going to giggle because I just told you, in church, don't laugh. Some of you, it's already over. You're going to laugh. You can't help it. I don't tell you these stories just to be silly or funny. I just want you to think about some of these scenarios that I'm going to describe to you. Let's go back in history. January 1919, Boston, Massachusetts. A storage tank exploded. Nobody knows why this storage tank exploded. In the explosion, in the flood that followed, 21 people lost their life. You say, what was it that was in the tank? It was molasses. A molasses tank burst. It was known as the Great Molasses Flood of Boston, and 21 people died in a molasses flood. I bet you've never met somebody or a family who said, I have a loved one. They died in a molasses flood. I bet you've never had that. It's a very unusual way to die. How about this story? June 1924. This is an actual picture of Frank Hayes. He was 35 years old. He was riding as a jockey on a horse called Sweet Kiss. Halfway through the race, Frank had a heart attack. This picture was taken before the heart attack had a heart attack, died before the horse finished the race, and Sweet Kiss won the race. Crossed the finish line first. And when Sweet Kiss crossed the finish line, there was Frank, already dead of a heart attack, mid-race. April 1982, that's the month I was born. That's why I picked this one. And I pick it as a warning for some of you. Michael Scaglione was golfing. He was not having a good day on the course. He teed off. He didn't like his drive. He took his driver. He walked back over to his golf cart. He smashed the golf club into the top of the cart. The club snapped in half. The club spun around. The shaft of the club, now sharp from being splintered, sliced his neck, and he bled out right there on the tee box. Do not smash your club into the ground. Say a bad word if you need to. Don't smash your club into the ground. That's an unusual way to die. One more story. This one's recent. You may have heard this. July 2019, a young man named Larry Mario Makata was found in a grocery store. Grocery store back in the back had this large refrigerator. Uh, It was time to replace it. They'd had it for decades. They moved the old refrigerator and they found this young man between the refrigerator and the wall He had been missing for 10 years. Nobody knew where he was. And the speculation is that he had climbed up on top of this refrigerator. He was taking some sort of break at work. He fell back behind. No one could hear him. And he was stuck there. And he passed away there. And they found him 10 years later. It's shocking. Authorities said it was just an accident. It was just one of those freak accidents. Look, I could give you all sorts of stories. I came across a long list this week. 
That's four strange ways to die. Do you know what you have in common with all of those people? Someday, you will die. I don't know how. You probably don't know how. But we're all terminal. All of us. And it may be in a molasses flood. It may be on the golf course. It may be a heart attack mid-race. Or it may, may be, it might be on break at work. It may be the coronavirus. It may be cancer. I don't know. You don't know. But we're all terminal. When you read this story about Lazarus, a large part of the story centers on death. Centers on death. And one of the things we need to think about, especially this week as we think about Lazarus actually dying, what does this passage have to say to us about suffering and sickness and death? In Jesus' response to getting this note from Mary and Martha and his delay because he loved these people and then finally deciding to go, what do we learn about sickness and suffering and death? How should this passage shape the way that we think about those things. And so let me just give you a few thoughts. Number one, the wages of sin is death. It's just a reminder. The wages of sin is death. This is what we read in the gospel or in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. And just a few chapters later, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The idea that people die is not news to you. Turn on the news any night and you'll see plenty of stories about people who have passed away. Some of them in very strange, unusual ways. Some of them in very predictable ways. But we all die. And the Bible just sort of pulls back the philosophical curtain and says, let me explain why it is that all people die. The Bible says that death and sickness and suffering entered the world through sin. The sin of Adam. Sin of Eve. And all of us have sinned. We sinned with Adam and Eve. Paul says that all have sinned. And the wages, the consequence, the result of our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. When Jesus got a note that someone was sick and on the verge of dying, nobody read the note and said, well, that's unusual. I've never known anybody that got sick. I didn't know people actually died. And it's so obvious we live with that sort of news all of the time. And the Bible reminds us that the wages of sin is death. You say, well, that just seems very basic, very elementary. Let me remind you of something important. Our friend James Boyce helps us. He says, even those whom Jesus especially loves get sick and eventually die. We are to learn from this that sickness in a believer is in no way incompatible with the Lord's love for him. Turn on the TV, you get on the internet, you visit certain churches, you will hear people say that if you are sick, it's your fault. If there's illness in your life, it's God's displeasure with you. But did you read this story? Lazarus, the one that Jesus loves, a close friend, he gets sick and he dies. It's not necessarily because Jesus is angry with him. That's just life in a fallen world. The wages of our sin, the consequence of our sin 
is death. It's not necessarily a specific instance showing God's displeasure in your life. It's just the broad pattern of how life works in a fallen world. We're sinful people, and the ultimate result, the ultimate consequence, the ultimate payout for all of us is death. Secondly, God may use our suffering for the good of others. This is a hard pill to swallow. Maybe I should say it's an easy pill to swallow in theory. It's a hard pill to swallow when it's actually your life under the microscope. In John 11, there's absolutely nothing that would suggest that the specific reason Lazarus got sick is that God was angry with him or punishing him for a specific thing he did or didn't do. It wasn't really about Lazarus as the story begins to unfold and you get a glimpse of it in the verses we read up through verse 16. It really has more to do with other people than it actually has to do with Lazarus. I mean, at one point, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, fellas, fellas, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that it happened. That's a strange thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? I'm glad that my friend and your friend, Lazarus, has died. Really wasn't about anything going on in Lazarus' life. It was actually about what was going on in the lives of other people. Theologians would call this a redemptive view of suffering. That God doesn't intend to waste our suffering, but he allows our suffering, and he has a purpose and he has a plan in it. You understand, that's the heart of the gospel, right? That's the heart of what happened at the cross where Jesus suffers and dies for his own sin? No, for our sin. His suffering really wasn't so much to do with his own life as it was our lives. And God used his suffering to save us. Now look, you're going to suffer in life and through your suffering, not a single person will be redeemed and forgiven of their sins. Your suffering does not have the same qualitative nature as Jesus' suffering. However, in your suffering, God wants to use it redemptively. He doesn't intend to waste it. It's not like things have spun out of control. It's not always that he's just immediately punishing you for something you did or didn't do. God may allow a certain degree of suffering in your life, and he may have intentions of using that, using you for a redemptive purpose in somebody else's life. God may use our suffering for the good of others. When we face suffering, do we face it with that mindset? Do we face it with eyes wide open, saying, God, I don't really know what you're up to in my life, but perhaps you're allowing me to walk through this valley because you want to use it for the good of of somebody else. Are you aware of that? Are you cognizant of that? Do you think about that? Number three, our feelings are not an accurate measure of God's love for us. Look at verse three. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What did they ask Jesus to do? What's the request in verse three? There is none, is there? They simply send a note to Jesus, their friend, 
somebody that's been in their home, somebody that they have a relationship with, and they say, Jesus, your buddy is sick. Now, you know as well as I do, they wanted him to come. They didn't ask him to come, but they sure hoped he was going to come. They knew the stories about Jesus. They had seen the things that he had done. They didn't ask Jesus to heal Lazarus, but you know as well as I do, it's obvious in the text, they wanted Jesus to heal Lazarus. How do you think Mary and Martha felt as they sat by Lazarus' bedside and he took his last breath out and died? They'd sent Jesus a note. They told him, the guy that you care about, your friend, the, the one you love, he's sick. We need you. Lazarus needs you. And he didn't come. They didn't know why. I imagine in that moment they were confused. I imagine in that moment they were hurt. I think it's pretty obvious that later when Jesus actually shows up, they're a little bit mad. They don't get it. They're struggling. Jesus, you didn't come. You didn't heal him. You could have just said the word. We've heard the stories about you healing other people at a distance. You didn't have, even have to be there. You could have just done it, and you have let us go through this valley. Just to be blunt, I imagine in that moment they did not feel very strongly that God loved them, that Jesus cared about them. Did he? Of course he did, and that's why John goes out of his way in verse 5. He says, let's get this straight. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved these people. Don't mistake him allowing you to walk through a valley as a sign that he doesn't love you or care for you. He loved these people. They maybe didn't feel it at the moment. There will be times in your life where you question it and you say, I just don't feel like God cares about me very much right now. That's when you come back to a verse like John eleven five, 5, and you say, you know what? Feelings aside, he loves me. How do I know that? It's because he died, Romans 5, for me on the cross while I was a sinner. God showed his love for me in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I don't have to question his love. It doesn't matter if I feel it or don't feel it. That's a fact. It's true. The tomb is empty. Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't have to wonder and question whether or not he loves me. I may not feel like he loves me every day. He loves me. and My feelings are not an accurate measure of that. Number four, physical death is not the worst kind of death. Physical death is not the worst kind of death. Look at verse four. Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, you might circle death and draw it over to verse 11 where Jesus says our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and you might circle the word asleep and then if you like to make notes you might draw it down to verse 14 where it says Jesus tells them plainly Lazarus has died I just want you to think about the grammar Jesus says it doesn't lead to death and then a little bit later a few days later he says he's asleep and when the disciples say well if He's taking a nap. He's going to wake up. He's going to get better. He's going, to, he's going to snap out of it. Jesus says, no, 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 he's died. 
not going to die, asleep, dead. I read a number of Bible scholars this week who just came out and said, it sure looks like Jesus is confused. It sure looks like Jesus was making his best guess at it, and he just didn't know how it was going to go. Look, in Oklahoma, I sat in a home with one of the older couples in our church, and they had called hospice in. And we sat in that living room, and the hospice nurse came, and she looked at this gentleman, and then she looked over at the wife and me, and the hospice nurse said, he will be dead before the day's out. This is it. He's begun the process. His body is shutting down. Can I tell you that that guy recovered and lived and went back to farming after that? He lived a couple of more years. I mean, he was a tough old boot. And you look at that nurse and you say, well, she didn't know. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing here, looking for the hospice signs. He's just misreading them, making an educated guess. I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he's mistaken. I don't think he's, he's misdiagnosing the situation. I think he's looking at the situation with a different perspective than you and I look at it. And in verse 4, when Jesus says, this does not lead to death, I think he's picturing big time, cosmic, spiritual, eternal death. And he's saying, fellas, take a breath. This is not going to end in ultimate death for Lazarus. And when he says to him in verse 11, our friend Lazarus is asleep, he's trying to say something important to them. He's trying to say, fellas, fellas, you've got to see big picture. Physical death is just like falling asleep. You fall asleep, you wake up. You go home on Sunday on time change, you say, i got to have a nap. But at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, I don't know, at some point you're going to wake up. You're going to get up. That's what you do when you take a nap. Death is kind of like that. It's not the ultimate end fellas, and they're confused by the whole thing. They're confused because they don't look at the situation with the same perspective Jesus has. They tend to look at the situation like you and I tend to look at the situation, which is death is it. That's the worst thing that could happen. Jesus looks at the situation and he understands physical death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Spiritual death is the worst thing that can happen to you. So he finally says, Lazarus, has died physically, he's dead, and I'm glad that it happened because we're about to do something truly remarkable. Physical death is not the worst kind of death. Do we live with that realization day in and day out? When we think about our loved ones, we think about our children, we think about our parents or our grandparents, do we live with that realization that physical death, as tragic as it is, as hurtful as it is, as painful as it is, is not the worst kind of death? Jesus is speaking with that perspective. Number five, the certainty of physical death should cause us to live with a sense of urgency. Urgency. Jesus eventually says to the guys, okay, we're going to Bethany. Bethany's really just a short walk from Jerusalem where we just read in John 10 that they were seeking to murder Jesus in the streets. And so the disciples hear Jesus say, pack up, get a bag, we're going to Bethany. And they think, I don't know if that's the best idea. Jesus, do you remember what happened? We were there, it was just three months ago. Now I know everyone's taking a breath and calmed down a little bit, but it was only three months ago. 
They wanted to murder you in the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus fires back and he starts to he starts to say things like this. There's 12 hours in the day. Don't you know there's only 12 hours in the day? And he says, you know, when the, the sun's up, the light's up, you've got to walk while the light's up. If you're walking in the dark, you're going to stumble. And you, you kind of feel like Jesus is like your great-grandpa here, giving you some sort of proverbial wisdom in your saying, Jesus, they want to throw rocks at your head. Well, what are you talking about? 12 hours in the day and the light and the darkness and walking and stumbling. Back in Kentucky, the old farmers in my church used to say it like this. We don't cut a lot of hay in this part of the world, but they used to say, you got to make hay when the sun's shining. Look, you're going to cut hay and you're going to bale hay. You need a couple of dry days in a row. You don't want to bale up wet, nasty, moldy hay. So you got to have a dry day or two to cut it, and then you got to let it lay there and dry out, and you got to come back behind and bale it, and you don't want any rain. So they're saying, look, when the sun is out, that's when you make hay. you got to get with it because it might rain in a couple of days. That's basically what Jesus is saying to the disciples. The Jews and the Romans at this point in history, they both divided the day into 12 segments of time. And those segments varied depending on the season. They were longer they were shorter. And essentially, Jesus is giving them some proverbial wisdom saying, look, I got stuff to do, fellas. I don't have time to worry about the threats of people who want to murder me. I don't have time to worry about that. We got stuff that we got to get done. So I'm not worried about the threats of the people in Jerusalem. We're going to go, and while we have time, we've got to be about the Father's business. You realize at this moment in time, Jesus is weeks from the cross. I know there's a lot of gospel still to go, but in the timeline of Jesus' life, we are right at the end. And Jesus knows it's coming. And he basically says, look, my end is coming, but until it comes, we got stuff to do. So we're going to go. You're not Jesus. Your death doesn't accomplish what Jesus' death accomplished but your death is coming. There will be a day where you are the guest of honor at a funeral. Until that day comes, you've got stuff to get done. It should cause you to live with a sense of urgency, especially when you think about some of the stories we talked about earlier. You think about Lazarus and you say, I bet Lazarus had a great retirement plan and he had years planned out and I'm going to live off my 401K, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to visit the grandkids, and I'm going to do this, and the whole thing just gets cut short. You've got to live with a sense of gospel urgency. You know that death is coming, and until it comes, you say, I've got stuff to get done. I've got to be about God's business. If one side of this passage is about death, the other side is about the gospel living with this kind of gospel urgency. And so I want to end with three thoughts. What does John 11, 1 to 16 teach us about life and salvation in Jesus? Let's think about the gospel. Number one, the name Lazarus reminds us that God is our help. God is our help. That is literally what the word, the name Lazarus means. God is my helper. It's like a big giant clue in the middle of this story for everyone involved. And God's saying, don't forget it. The guy who died, what was his name? Lazarus. 
don't forget God is your helper. It reminds us of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Bible says that God is holy. And the Bible says that you and I are sinful people. And the Bible says that when you take a holy God and you begin to mix in sinful people, guess what you have? Trouble. Big trouble. The kind of trouble you can't get yourself out of and a preacher can't get you out of and religious ritual can't get you out of. Serious trouble. And the hope of the gospel is God himself is your helper. God helps you. The Father loves you when you are not lovable. And the Son walked on this earth to earn obedience and righteousness for you, and He died your death while you were still a sinner. And the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to dead sinners, dead in their trespasses and sins, to give us life, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. The triune God is our helper. The Father loves us. The Son dies for us. The Spirit applies salvation to our life. God is our helper. And we remember as we look at this story of Lazarus, God helps his people. When you get the idea that God is our helper, I think it makes you a courageous optimist. A courageous optimist. When you understand God's holy and I'm a sinner and that puts me in a world of trouble that I can't fix, but God himself is going to help me. Regardless of your circumstance, I think it makes you a courageous optimist. Thomas gets half of that right in this story. Just one quick word about Thomas. We remember him as doubting Thomas, but did you catch what he says here? When Jesus says, no, 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 we're going to Bethany, Thomas pipes up and he says, okay, let's go that we may die. That's courage. He thinks he's walking straight into his death. And he says, let's go. Doubting Thomas. I bet he wishes he was remembered as courageous Thomas. Let's go. He's not an optimist, though. Let's go. You can hear his Eeyore voice. Let's go die. He's a courageous pessimist. We'll give him half credit. Lazarus, God is my helper. No pessimists, no cowards, courageous optimists. God is our helper. Secondly, Jesus came to give his people life. That was his mission. That was his purpose. We saw that in John 20. You see it in the opening chapter of John's gospel where we, we read these verses. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Everything that you will read about Jesus in the entire Gospel of John, you can find in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. He came to give us life. That was His mission. How did he do it? Well, he died our death. He took our place on the cross. He took the wrath of the Father that should have fallen on us, 
the darkness fell on him that should have fallen on us, and he overcame it. And the end result is that he gives us life. John said, John 20, these things are written, these signs are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Jesus came to give us life. Thirdly, Jesus came to reveal the glory of God. He came to reveal the glory of God. Verse 4, Jesus said, this illness does not lead in death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's a theme that runs all the way through the Gospel of John. To go back to chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, take on human flesh? Why was He born of a virgin? Why did He become a human being? It was to show glory to us. We've seen His glory Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why did Jesus perform miracles and signs? Well, let's look at the first sign, John 2.11. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. That's where he turned water into wine. And he manifested his glory. He did it. These signs, these miracles, not just to show off, but to reveal the glory of God. What was on Jesus' mind the night before he was crucified? Well, John chapter 17, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven, and what was the first thing he prayed? Father, the hour has come, my typo, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's praying that God would receive glory. He's praying that the Son would be glorified. What does he say in this story? Why did he let Lazarus die? Why did he delay and not go help him? He says, look, the illness doesn't lead to death. The whole thing... Is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Listen, the things that God is doing in your life and the things that God is not doing in your life are on purpose. They're intentional. It's that Jesus might receive glory. In your family, the things that God is doing and the things that he is not doing are designed to bring glory to Jesus. In our life as a church family, the things that God is doing in us and through us and among us and the things he's not doing in us and among us and through us are designed to give glory to God. That's our hope. Not in circumstances, not in God following our agenda, but in Jesus promising to glorify himself. So we're going to pray.